One day the glider port was hit by a tornado and just wiped out. It was wiped flat. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 59. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Our guest today, Dennis Lenikin, has been flying since 1970. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical operations from San Jose State. He worked as a glider tow pilot as well as a CFI and a charter pilot, flew the mail at night in Cessna 402s, He also flew some small shipments of explosives on government contract. He flew as a commuter pilot on Piper Navajos and Cessna 402s. He was hired as a pilot by Delta Airlines in 1977, where he spent 11 years as second officer and first officer, 27 years as a captain. His type ratings on the Boeing include the 737, the 727, the 757, the 767, and of course the 777 and the DC-9. He retired on the 777 in 2016 and holds a valid instructor certificate for airplane single and multi-engine land, instrument airplane, as well as a glider rating. He has over 30,000 hours in his logbook with 1,800 of those in gliders, and we will hear some stories about that. So let's get to our guest right now here on Soaring the Sky. Dennis, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy for you to join me today. How are you? I'm great, Chuck. Pleasure to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to meet you. Where are you flying out of? We moved recently uh, from Georgia out to California, so now I'm calling Williams Soaring my home. Okay. Yep. I'm familiar with them. Yeah. I think you did a podcast with Ben Mays recently. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. I talked to him a while back. Where did your aviation adventure begin, and how did you get into gliders? Well, it began... When I was pretty young, I was a Boy Scout, and I was uh, trying to qualify for the Architecture Merit Badge. And the uh, Merit Badge counselor in my area was an architect named Bob Clemenson. Well, uh, I went over to Bob's, well, Mr. Clemenson's house, and uh, he, he talked to me about architecture, and he looked at all of the things that I had done in preparation for qualifying for the badge. He said, okay, you've, you've completed this. All the requirements are good. And he says, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, sir. Did you fly that? And I pointed to a P-38 model that was on his fireplace mantle. And he said, I did. And I said, did you fly that in World War II? And he said, he did. He said, are you interested in aviation? I said, I am. And he said, well, let me show you something in my shop. And we went into his shop, and there was a brand-new standard-class Cirrus. The fuselage was on uh, sawhorses, and he had been polishing that in in preparation for the beginning of the racing season. So uh, we talked about soaring and uh, 
flying a bit and I went on my merry way. Then uh, a few years later, when I graduated from high school, I spent a couple of years at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And uh, then I, I really found uh, the college I needed to be attending, and that was San Jose State. They, at the time, had a great aeronautical uh, aeronautics program there. So I transferred colleges, graduated from San Jose State, and I was able to get all my civilian ratings um, through the uh, flying club at San Jose State called the Flying 20. Uh, from there, I, I had a commercial, uh, a limited commercial. So my first flying job was uh, towing gliders for Bud Murphy at Sky Sailing Glider Port in Fremont. And there were a bunch of us. He liked to hire uh, San Jose State students. And uh, there was a bunch of young kids out there like me, all of us trying to build time. Many of us wanted to be airline pilots. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Those of us that wanted to become airline pilots and were towing gliders there for Bud, became airline pilots. So that was my first job in flying. And I was able to, uh, part of our fringe benefit package at Sky Sailing was to, uh, we, could, we could fly the gliders free and the tows were free as long as we could get an instructor to uh, go up with us. So one of the elder gentlemen there, uh, was a man named Chick Chikarian, and uh, he was a senior TWA captain at the time. I thought he was the most ancient man I'd ever met. Now I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably 10 years older than he was at the time when he instructed me. But he he gave me uh, my first glider instruction, and I soloed and you know flew the 233 and the 126 there. Then. Uh, I went on to become a civilian flight instructor and did a whole bunch of civilian jobs, uh, flying mainly in the seven Western states, uh, everything from uh, lots of instruction at various FBOs. And uh, I did some corporate work, did odd things like uh, scatter uh, ashes for funeral homes out past the Golden Gate Bridge. I did the commute report for a short period of time for KSFO radio station in the mornings in a Cessna 150. We didn't use a helicopter for that. So I have to ask you about that a little bit because me being having a little bit of radio background and broadcasting myself. So how did that work out when you were doing reports basically right from the aircraft? Yes. Uh, we had a radio hookup so I could uh, talk live and directly to the uh, studio. And the morning, um, the morning personality on KSFO radio station at the time was Jim Lang, who was also famous for uh, being the host of the dating game way back then. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, television had just been invented. <laughs> but uh, he, he was known as his, his radio show on KSFO radio was uh, called Jim Lang and the Morning Gang. And my, my boss out at Pacific States Aviation in Concord, California, he had been doing the commute report for years and years and years, and uh, a fellow named Warren Boggess. So, uh, but he had a heart problem, and he couldn't do it anymore. So I was the junior instructor, so they said, well, junior instructor, you get up at 4.30 in the morning and go fly around the Bay Area over the, over the uh, freeways and 
tell us what you see. <laughs> oh, and give a weather report while you're at it. So that's what I did. It was an opportunity to put your foot in your mouth on live radio. Well, you, yeah. you get that. You know that. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it just goes out. I mean, one time I remember I was over, I was supposed to be over Candlestick Park, but I was delayed. And uh, I was maybe 10 minutes from being over Candlestick, and it was opening day, whatever year. That was uh, maybe 75. So <laughs> April of 75, and uh, they go, well, let's check traffic. Let's see, is Dennis, you up there, Dennis? Uh, tell us, what. how's the traffic uh, coming into the park right now? And I said, well, uh, <laughs> and I didn't know what to say because I was over the middle of the bay. I said, I'm, I'm over the middle of the bay, and uh, there isn't any traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so the, I was working with a different disc jockey, and he says, uh, you don't see any boats? No boats? I said, well, there's a tanker and there's a, looks like a cruise ship over there, but that's it. So he says, well, you just keep flying and let us know when you're over the stick and give us a report. Wow. Uh, that has been not, pretty cool. That only lasted a couple months that I, I had that job. And then I moved on. I moved from there up to... Uh, another job in Redding, California, and did a lot of work, a lot of charters up there all through the mountains, worked with the U.S. Forest Service and the California Division of Forestry on fires up there, and that was quite uh, quite challenging flying. Then uh, from there, I was hired by Delta Airlines back in 77, and I worked for Delta until I retired in 2016. So that's, wow. the, that's the long story. That's a lot of flying. If you back it up just a little bit, what was it like working with the fires? I served as a kind of a forward observation platform. We used Cessna Skymasters, the 337s, and we had uh, radio antennas uh, mounted on the bottom of the wings for these uh, for the California Division of Forestry radio operator and the U.S. Forest Service radio operator. So they would direct their own tankers. Each uh, entity had its own group of tankers, and uh, they would be directing the tankers on where to drop from this airborne platform. Occasionally, well, with the California Division of Forestry, the CDF, they didn't have lead airplanes. That, so we provided that as well, We we would, uh, which basically meant the the uh, CDF spotter would say, fly down this ridge and then fly down that gully and rock your wings when you get over the gut or when I tell you to. So you'd just do that and the, uh, the tankers, the CDF tankers would follow and uh, see where he wanted the retardant drop. Forest Service, they had their own lead aircraft. They had a whole fleet of barons that uh, could stay out ahead of the basically the fleet of... Um, DC-4s, DC-6s, and some, they even had a B-17 uh, at the time dropping retardant uh, for the Forest Service out here. Largest fire I was ever on was uh, 220,000 acres, so nothing like they've been seeing out here lately. That's still a, a huge fire. I can't imagine anything that large. 
you know, we would fly the perimeter and just look for um, smoke jumping any outside the, the containment lines. We'd call that in and then go try to put it out. Now, were you flying gliders through your whole career in aviation, or was that something you got back into? I know you said you flew them when you were younger. Yeah, like many people, I, I got soloed. Then I took 15 years off. I went back to it. I, I got my commercial glider rating in uh, 89, and I was in soaring for about two years, often as a tow pilot. But I did fly a bit and <laughs> did some accidental cross-countries and gliders, uh, maybe one or two, but I wasn't a cross-country pilot at the time. And then that club was in Atlanta. One day, the glider port was hit by a tornado and just wiped out. It was wiped flat. So I thought that 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 glider club had gone defunct. Well, I was wrong. They merged with another glider club on the other side of Atlanta uh, and became Mid-Georgia Soaring Association. So when I found out that they had, and this is much later, uh, so from 91, I I got reconnected with Mid-Georgia Soaring in about 2004. But uh, they had a great bunch of guys and a great fleet couple of K-21s, a Grobe 102, and uh, they had an LS-4, and they said, hey, uh, you've gone to a SSA um, cross-country course. I went to the one in Reno at Air Sailing Glider Port. They've got a great course up there for initial cross-country training in gliders, and uh, they said, well, you've been to this course. Why don't you... um, why don't you take the LS4 and the trailer and the batteries and the ground handling stuff and go do a GTA race in the, in the South, they have uh, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama racing association. So I did that. I was immediately hooked and that's when I started racing. I, I got into racing because uh, I, I felt like I had let time pass me by in soaring and I wanted to become the best cross-country pilot I could be as quickly as I could be. I, I was anxious to get going with the program, and racing is really a good way to hone your cross-country skills. So flew my first race, I think it was in 06, and I've been racing four to six races a year since then. Now, where are you racing? Just different locations? Or yeah, different mostly? locations. We would trailer our gliders uh, everywhere uh, from the season starts down in Seminole Lakes Glider Port with the seniors. Once you're old enough to be that you're you're supposed to be 55, although they have younger guests at the seniors. But uh, it's known as the geezer glide for a reason. You have to be 55 or older. And I'll tell you, the level of competition there is unbelievable. There are some people there that have been flying gliders for 40 or 50 years, and they are super pilots. So you, you start the season at Seminole Lake and then uh, up the road to Perry, uh, the Perry Glider Port, Perry International in Wagner, South Carolina, then Cordial, and then because I was living in Atlanta, those were the ones that I would go to, and then up to Newcastle, Virginia, up near you. Uh, Newcastle is a fabulous contest, fantastic. But I've flown contests also in Mifflin, Hobbs, Uvalde, uh, Minden, air sailing in Reno, Nephi, Logan, Utah. So all over the place. And each site has its own challenges and you learn a lot each site. And, um, 
by the time the contest is over, you'll have just about enough local knowledge to do well. (laughs) (laughs) Those are some really different soaring conditions. I mean, you're talking about soaring in the east and the Appalachians, and then soaring out in Nephi with the desert and the bigger thermals. You got to get a lot going on with all those different locations. Yeah, they were all challenging in their own ways. Uh, You know, flying the ridge down down the Blue Ridge out of uh, Newcastle or Mifflin, that is unbelievable racing. Uh, When you're down on the ridge on a good ridge day with five of your buddies going south, and then, uh uh-oh, here come five of your buddies coming north on the same ridge, and everybody kind of gets out of everybody's (laughs) way. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, love the ridge soaring up there in the Appalachians and then the mountain soaring in the West loved the unbelievable thermals, uh, you know, West of the Mississippi, like Uvalde and well, Uvalde is just an unbelievable soaring spot. It's unfortunate. They don't have a full-time, uh, operation going there. And now, uh, I'm learning more out here at the Williams soaring center. Uh, they do a lot of convergence flying, uh, where the, Pacific air mass meets the valley air mass of, of the Sacramento Valley, and a lot of energy is released when those two air masses meet. And you can use that convergence line to fly some pretty long cross countries doing that, but I'm a neophyte at that. I'm, I'm back to square one almost on that. But that's what I love about flying. Any segment of flying, you're always learning. Now, what are the gliders that you've progressed up through as you're racing? I know you started out way back flying the 233 and the 126, like a lot of us do, and then you progressed up. What what did you go up to, and what have you flown? Well, I purchased a third of an L13 Blanick that was uh, tied down at Air Sailing Glider Port up near Reno. (laughs) So I decided, well, I'm going to take this glider to the cross-country course here at at Air Sailing. So I did, and uh, I was the only metal ship there everybody else had glass and undaunted i uh i I did the course and had a blast flew a couple of short cross countries in the blanick and then um as i mentioned mid georgia soaring association has a had it at the time an ls4 so nice uh high performance sailplane so and they were willing to let me take it to contest so i did but then i started thinking well you know I really don't want to ding this glider up and uh, finding that I'm making real conservative decisions based on the fact that it's not my glider and I, I need to take really, really careful care of it. And so I decided to buy my own and uh, looked around and I found a great ASW 27 out here, uh, coincidentally enough, at William Soaring. And I, I bought that glider back in 07 and owned that glider for a few years. Then uh, a buddy of mine suggested we become partners, and he said, why don't, uh, why don't I buy half of your glider? And I said, well, why would I do that? And he says, well, hear me out. You, you would do that because then we would also put in an order for an ASG-29. We would own two gliders, and we'd flip a coin to see who flew the 18-meter glider when there was an 18-meter contest. And so uh, I found that to be a fantastic way to own sailplanes is with a partner we got along famously we're still real close friends now we did have to dissolve the partnership recently because of our move out to california so rob has the uh this is rob ware in uh, cave spring georgia that i'm talking about a lot of people 
know Rob and like Rob. So Rob has the uh, the 27, and I purchased the 29, brought it west, and I've recently uh, sold that glider uh, to a friend of yours, Mitch Thompson. Yeah, that's uh, right. I did that because I wanted to I wanted to get into sailplanes with engines, so I bought an ASG 29 because I just love the performance of, of the ship, both in 15 and 18 meters, ballasted, unballasted, I don't care. It's the best glider I've ever flown. So I bought one locally here. Uh, Ray Gimme sold me his ASG 29ES, which means engine sustainer. So it's a, it's not a self-launcher, but um, it has just enough to get you back to lift or uh, over to a county airport or something to land on if you have to land out. Well, speaking of landing out, have you ever had to land out? Well, let me think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, I have. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've uh, I've landed one contest in, in Perry, <laughs> South Carolina. I landed out the first four days of the contest. The scorer came, and uh, on the fifth day, she came over to my glider. I was standing there. We we're about to push the glider out. And she says, Delta Lima, you come back here today. And I was afraid not to. She was kind of fierce about the whole thing suggestion that I should come back there that day and not land out and visit another farmer. And uh, so I made it around that day, but that was all out of fear. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me about maybe one of the scariest toes or winch launches you've had, if you have, and maybe what you learned from it? Let's see. Uh, The one that really got my attention was, uh, it was a toe at Nephi, and we were, I think it was a national championship contest and everybody was loaded with water. Nephi is a high altitude airport. It's warm. We were using a lot of runway. There is a lot of runway in Nephi, not a problem. We were using a lot of runway and uh, most of the tow pilots knew to, once they broke ground, to stay in ground effect until they had, they were indicating maybe 75 knots and then they would climb out. But uh, on this one occasion, I don't know what the tow pilot thought or if there was just a lapse, but uh, that tow pilot left ground effect and I was just hanging on the end of that rope, you know, and it was like blue tow plane faster. (laughs) And uh, pilot, you know, pitched over and slowly, very slowly accelerated. Uh, I wasn't sure the glider was going to fly and it was just barely flying at that point. That's most memorable. What are maybe some of the coolest things that you've seen from the cockpit, or maybe the strangest things you've seen from the cockpits all the years you've been flying? Well, one time uh, I was a co-pilot on a 757, and we were flying from Atlanta to Seattle, I believe, or maybe maybe Atlanta to uh, Salt Lake City. Anyway, it was nighttime, and uh, we're at altitude. We're at 35,000 feet, and we're cruising along, talking, and it's dark out. And I look up, and I see what appears to be two aircraft flying in fairly loose formation, followed by what appears to be two other aircraft flying with afterburners lit behind them. And I thought, wow, what is that? So I, I mean, they went by us pretty fast to the, to our right. The captain couldn't see because of the, he couldn't see up high enough out of my window to see them. 
So I got on the radio and I asked Denver Center if they had any traffic that we ought to know about. And they said, no, nothing around you. And I said, well, four aircraft just went by us to our right and high. And uh, he said, okay, stand by. So he apparently called NORAD and NORAD said, yeah, that was a Russian booster that didn't that failed to achieve orbital orbital velocity and it's entered the atmosphere and burned up it was visible oh, night. <laughs> yeah wow it was amazing <laughs> it burned up and was visible from seattle all the way down to new orleans that night so that was that was an odd sighting that debris was you know way way up but it was just going so fast you know eighteen thousand miles an hour I guess a little less because he didn't get orbital velocity. But uh, as it came into the atmosphere and broke up, I imagine it was up, you know, 400, 300,000 feet. But it, it went by us so fast, it, it appeared to be much closer. You spoke about, you know, some really nice gliders that you've owned and you've flown. But do you have a dream glider that, that you would definitely like to get your hands on and fly? Well, I do love my 29. <laughs> but... You know, I suppose uh, I, I flew in a friend's Arcus, Pete Alexander, uh, and I flew for four days over the Minden Task area in his Arcus. And I, I found that to be just a wonderful ship to fly. Light on the controls, fast, pretty much a dream ship. So, yeah, self-launching Arcus would be nice. Now, not for the self-launcher, but for the one that you were flying, the sustainer. What do you need to fly that now if, if you're just a glider pilot without a launch rating? Can you fly the sustainers as well, or do you have to also get a rating for those? I'm not familiar with that. That's a question I have for uh, Rex Mays over at William Soaring. I, I think I need an endorsement for as a motor glider. They have a ASG32 two-seater over there that uh, whatever um, experience I need for uh, the motor glider endorsement can be done in that if one is required in fact yeah i haven't personally flown any of the self-launchers or the sustainers myself but they do intrigue me i i never have either spoken recently to a few 29 owners that that have a sustainer and they've kind of talked me through some of the thought process there are there any weather products that you use to help before you go soaring? Well, like a lot of people, I like SkySight. You know, we used to use Dr. Jack, which was great. But SkySight is really a good site, I think. Some people, um, the purists, I guess, it, it doesn't have, they, they say, well, you're not looking at the best, most recent soundings. Um, you know, there's there's some places you can go, apparently, that, and I mean, these the purists have lists of sites they go to. They go, well, this is where I get my uh, my general briefing. Then I go here for uh, my temperature traces, and I get my SKU-T log P over here. And they make kind of a, a job of it. So I really like how Matthew Scudder has put all of that in one place. It's pretty digestible, and you... You know, I do go to the National Weather Service and I look at their forecasts and the, their long range forecasts and stuff there. But I have been very pleased with uh, SkySight. I'd like to, um, at contests, one thing I've been doing is I'll get together with a few of my buddies after the pilot briefing and we, we get a briefing on the weather there. We probably already looked at the weather before we went to the briefing over coffee in the morning and then go to the 
weather briefing, then you get your task. And as soon as you get your task, you can insert that into SkySight. See if anything jumps out as uh, advantageous or something that could be negative later, like high clouds coming in. And you can tab through the day by time this high cloud cover at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and you can watch it come right over the task area. Oh, that, yeah, that seems like it would really help out in your planning. Yeah, so I like to you know, sit down with some buddies just before the launch and, and take a look at that, see, if, see what we see. And it's, it's been useful. It's been good. From all your years of flying sailplanes, what advice would you have for others on how to be a better and safer pilot? It's sort of a seasonal sport. So we stop flying in October or November, and we might not fly depending on where you live and whether or not you're fortunate enough to get to southern climate. Might not fly till March or April. So there's a large gap there where you can get pretty rusty. And so I think it's important during the off months, if you can't fly, to at least keep your head in the game. And uh, you can do that by reading some of the books on soaring that you've already read in the past, you know, Winning by Moffat and uh, Brigliadori has great books on, on soaring. Reread the textbook. Um, you can do a lot of visualization too. And Condor is, is a good way to keep your head in the game. I mean, you're making pilot decisions. You're just thinking about flying. So during that off time, it could be as long as, uh, four or five, even six months in some cases. You can keep mentally active, keep your brain thinking pilot thoughts. And then at the end of all that, when you head out to the glider port, I think it's, I'm gonna give a plug for CFIGs. I think it's important, no matter how much flight time you have, to go up with a CFIG and just make sure there's no, uh, no rust way in the corners where there shouldn't be rust before you go out and uh, you know, put your ship together and go fly a contest. I think it's important to do that. Definitely some great advice for sure. What are your plans for the future? I know that you're going to be flying the new glider. Yeah, I, I have not flown my new glider, uh, being the glider ports are closed and, uh, I didn't want to go over and bother Ray. He let me keep it at his house. He's got it in a very nice RV barn over at his house, not far from where I live now. So uh, he's been very generous in just saying, hey, leave it here and come and get it when you want it. So I'm looking forward to that. But I'm also, as I said, I'm looking forward to learning about the flying that they do out of Williams. It's a little different. And um, I'm excited about learning that. There's a few, you know, really, really great pilots that fly out of Williams that I hope to tag along with and learn from. I guess that's uh, <laughs> just go fly some more contests. I'm, I'm thinking about four of them this year, but I don't know if they'll be held or not with everything being uh, shut down right now. We'll see. Yeah, hopefully, you know, we all can get some soaring done, even if it's at the latter part of the year, but that's definitely the goal. Hopefully, yes. Well, Dennis, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's been great to have you. It's great to hear My your pleasure. story. My pleasure, Chuck. And thank you for listening. If you're a first-time listener, we have interviewed a lot of pilots from all over the world, from student pilots to world champions. You can find all the episodes on the website, SoaringTheSky.com, or, of course, on your favorite podcast app. We bring you a new guest each week. For those who continue to listen each week, thank you very much. You're very much appreciated. 
If you would like to help us out so we can continue to bring you great content, you can do that as well. Patreon.com slash SoaringTheSky. Have a great week, stay safe, and stay healthy. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website, SoaringTheSky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.